I am thrilled to stand before you this morning and begin our summer sermon series studying through the book of Hosea. And so I invite you to turn there with me this morning uh, to the small book, relatively small, uh, compared to some in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, one of the larger uh, books in the section known as the Minor Prophets. Daniel, Hosea uh, is the order there. So if you can find Daniel, uh, just turn over to the next book. It'd be the book of Hosea. And we want to begin to look at this book throughout the summer months. One of the things that I want to happen in your hearts, one of the things that I desire for our church, is that in studying the book of Hosea, we would understand how deep the love of God for us as sinners is. To understand the depths of His compassion, to understand the length to which His faithfulness will go, to love and to save those who are His, despite sin, despite how horrible the situation may be, the love of God cannot fail. And it will not fail. And it is so broad and so immense. It's my prayer that that we as a church would grab a hold of an understanding of the covenant, faithful love of God for sinners. That, That we would be forever changed, understanding how God loves and the extent to which He is faithful to His promises. Uh, that's my prayer as we look at this. It, it's probably um, not not the type of sermon series that you might expect over the summer, uh, but in the midst of the heat and and uh, the, the, the dog days of summer, I can't think of anything more refreshing than to understand the love of God afresh and anew uh, from this wonderful book of Hosea. Let's do this. Let's read the first chapter this morning together. And I would invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word as we read chapter one. And then we endeavor simply this morning to understand an introduction to the book. We're not going to jump into it in its fullness, but just by way of introduction to begin to grab a hold of some of the the bones, the skeleton of this book that we might go back in weeks to come and hang the flesh on. God speaks here in the book of Hosea, beginning in chapter 1, the word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, kings of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry. And have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. 
But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses or horsemen. And when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it has been said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. The sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader. They will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you. And Father, I ask this one thing this morning, if we are not aware of how sinful we are, of how our sin plays a perfect imitation of the role of Gomer as a rebel, as a harlot who strays from her God. Father, lay the weight of our sin on us. Show us where we have strayed. Show us how even the smallest sin in our estimation, in our mind, is an act of harlotry, an act of rebellion, an act of ingratitude and unfaithfulness to You. And Father, in understanding how wicked we are and and how desperately sinful we are, may we understand the love of God and the grace of God that is greater than our sin. And may we understand, Father, from the life and from the writings and from the prophecy of this man, Hosea, who lived so many years ago, may we understand that you are faithful that you are loving, that you will pursue those who are yours and that you will fulfill your redemption in them regardless of the cost. And you will restore them. Father, may we rest upon your character this summer. May we be drawn to a God of compassion, a God of faithfulness, a God of love more and more as we dive into this book. Father, I pray this morning that you would begin to just help us to have a a basic understanding of where we're headed in this book. Lord, a, a book that draws us to your character. And may we find comfort and solace and strength in that. And may we be drawn and wooed to you and away from our sin because we see your holiness and at the same time we see your love to make us what we should be. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior, the one who came and redeemed us from our sin. The very definition of love. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. As we begin the book of Hosea, I want to begin by asking you a few questions. And I want you to answer them honestly in your mind. You don't have to answer them publicly. You don't have to raise your hand. 
You don't have to make any facial expressions that would give away your answers. But I want you to, in all honesty, in your heart, in your mind, answer the following questions. Are you a lovable person? Are you a lovable person? Let me be a bit more specific with you. Knowing yourself, knowing your history, knowing your past, knowing the thoughts in your mind, knowing your own secret actions, do you deserve to be loved? These are important and critical questions for us, questions that must be answered. And the answer that we give to any one of those questions probably varies depending on the time in which you answer that question. If you've just had uh, a fight with your wife on the way to church this morning and you were not being a gracious, loving servant of a husband, you're probably sitting here going, no, I don't deserve to be loved. I am not a lovable person. But if things are going well in your life, you might answer that differently. You you, if your wife told you this morning, on the other hand, men, that you're her hero and you're so kind and so loving, you, you might be tempted to answer that question. Yes, I deserve to be loved. I am a lovable person. But overall, if, if the overall trajectory of our life, if we take our worst moments and some of the things that we have done and said in our life, the overall scope of understanding that it is not our good merits before God, not the good things that get us in, but rather it is the the one smallest wrong thing that sets us apart from God. If we take into account that perspective... That the holiness of God is the ultimate standard, not our wife's standard, not my standard, not our culture's standard. If we understand that it is the holiness of God that says you are right or wrong. And we understand what James says in James chapter 2, that if we offend in one point, even the smallest violation of God's law and God's holiness, we are guilty as if we had gone out and done everything we could think of against God. When we take that perspective, regardless of how we feel and maybe the right things we have done, we would answer, no, I am not a lovable person. No, I do not deserve to be loved, period. In fact, we could probably tragically point to people in our life because of that reality on a human level who do not like us, who do not love us, who have been wounded or hurt by us. Maybe we could even find people who hate us because of the things we have done against them in the past. The second question. Are you a lovable person? Do you deserve to be loved? But a second question is in order, and that question is this. Does anyone love you? Is there anyone in your life who loves you? Now, having answered the first question that no, we really are not lovable people. 
We're sinners. We do things wrong against God and against other people. We do not deserve to be loved. And yet, the the second question is critical. Is there someone in your life right now who loves you? For all of us, we can answer that question, yes. There is someone who loves me. There is someone who loves me, and it is at this point that we discover the truly remarkable feat that loving us entails because we've already said we are not, as a whole, lovable people. My wife loves me not because of me, but in spite of me. And we ask the question, how can they possibly love me. I have spoken ill to them. I have done things against them. I have by direct will done things to hurt them. I have done things uh, by omission, by accident that hurt them. How could they possibly love me? And it is wonderful to know that we are loved. And yet it's a mystery in spite of knowing that that we do not deserve to be loved, it is even more a mystery and a miracle that we we are loved. Now, for those who love you, do they love you because they have incredibly low standards? Is it because they don't expect anything? That wouldn't bring you much comfort, would it? If your spouse or your children said to you, or or if parents said to child, I love you, but I love you because my standards are so incredibly low. That would not bring you much comfort, would it? Do they have no other choice but to love you? I love you for one reason. I have to. I don't have a choice. I was forced to love you. That would not bring you much encouragement. But friends, brothers and sisters, what if those that love you, love you because you are imperfect? What if those who love you, love you because you do not deserve to be loved? What would it do for you to know that in the midst of answering that first question and being honest with yourself that you are a broken individual, that you are an unlovable individual? What would it do for you to know that someone actually loved you because you are broken? That they love you precisely because they can give love to you when you cannot give it back to them. Now, what would that do for you? Love that gives them an opportunity to demonstrate to you what love really is. Not to cast you aside because you don't meet the standards that they have set up for those who they would love. But instead, to bring you close to them in order to mend you and to redeem you and to rebuild you. 
would not we say that is love? That is the kind of love that encourages us, that strengthens us, that merits our worship. Nor does this love cast you away or accept you because standards are altered. Their standards are very high. In fact, in the case of God for sinners, it is the highest standard of complete perfection and holiness. But rather, love that comes and makes you worthy of their standard. That's love. Love that is not in spite of imperfection, but love that exists because of our imperfection. Enter Hosea. Enter a man who was called not only to bear witness of such love from God to the nation of Israel, but also a man who was called to live out such a love in a daily way with a wife who was a harlot. Inner Hosea, a man who had the singular and unique privilege of demonstrating the love of God for the people of God by loving his own wife, who so many times betrayed him. The story of Hosea is a beautiful story of redeeming love, love that has born out of covenant faithfulness, love that is demanding and yet equipping. It's perfect love. It is perfect love for imperfect people. Over the summer months, we want to study that kind of love, redeeming love from God as he spoke through and lived it out through the prophet Hosea. And so this morning we begin studying this prophet who unfortunately is in a grouping there in the Old Testament of books inspired by God called the Minor Prophets. And I just want to say at the beginning, there's nothing minor about Hosea. There's nothing minor about any of the Minor Prophets. They're, they're simply grouped that way uh, for a number of reasons, but their message is no less important than that of the longer books of the Major Prophets of Jeremiah and Isaiah, so forth. But here is Hosea, this man that that really we talk about very little. And that's unfortunate. Because his message and his life need to be heard. And, And this morning we want to just begin to discover a little bit about this somewhat mysterious, often less talked about man. We find that as we read the Old Testament, that only this book bearing his name tells us anything about him. Hosea is mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. It is here and here alone that we find him. And so we must mine what information we can out of this one book to understand him. But two things we learn about Hosea that are extremely important occur in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles open, look with me again at verse 1 of chapter 1 in Hosea. 
the Spirit of God, remember, is writing this. He is writing it, yes, uh, by the hand of Hosea, but the Spirit of God is giving Hosea the words, as Peter would tell us in Second Peter 1, 21, that holy men of old uh, spoke, or they wrote as the Spirit of God moved them. So this is God writing this story, using Hosea as the human instrument and author to do so. But here's what we learn about Hosea. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea. The first thing that we have to admire, the first thing that we have to understand about Hosea is that he spoke on behalf of God. This is not Hosea's creation. Hosea is not writing the story for creative writing class uh, for uh, the sake of being published as a very good novelist. Hosea is writing this because God told him to. Because God is leading him in every word to write this message. As we read through the book of Hosea, it is an almost impossible book to outline. I want you to know that. For those of you who are very uh, analytical, those engineers among us who, who, who you are, are extremely analytical, God has gifted you that way, and you can diagram and flowchart and outline everything. This book will drive you crazy. There is no real outline to it, other than to say that the first three chapters are a personal testimony of Hosea's life with he and his profligate wife. And then chapters 4 through 14 give us the national picture of what Hosea and Gomer lived out in a microcosm personally in their home. And so you basically have two major divisions in the book. Past that, it's very difficult to outline the book. It doesn't really follow a logical Western thought flow. It is definitely poetic. It is Middle Eastern in its flow. And so if you're going to attack this book this summer as we're reading through it in that vein, be warned, you will be frustrated. Nevertheless, the message is powerful. Hosea speaks on behalf of God. Everything in Hosea's life that is being said and done is a direct response to the Spirit of God speaking in him. It's more than just a human romance drama that some have tried to characterize it as being. It is a message from God, a word to the people of God, to a specific audience for a specific reason. And the call... Here, the word of the Lord, which came to Hosea as a prophet of God, is unusual for many reasons. The call of a prophet, any man who was called to fulfill that office and that ministry in the Old Testament, was an unusual person. He was not normal. If we go back and we read the lives of the prophets, they were unusual for many reasons. The first of which is that most came from humble backgrounds. They came from the lowest estate. And yet they were called to come from the lowest estate in their culture to address the kings and the people in highest authority in their day. Taking you or I and saying, go speak this message of judgment 
to the President of the United States. Who, me? You, you know I'm not fluent, Lord, and Moses, I, I can't speak. They were men like Amos who as I love this account in the book of Amos, which follows Hosea. As I was herding sheep, the Lord came to me and called me. And he said, go tell the king. Go prophesy. I'm a sheep herder. I stink. I don't know anything about public policy. I don't care. I'm calling you. I'll give you the words you go. So the prophet was unusual in that, that they often came. Maybe the only exception is Isaiah, who had some royal blood in his veins. Without exception, everyone else were just ordinary men. But God used the ordinary things so that when people looked at them, the world had to reckon with the fact these men are speaking on behalf of a God who is greater. Second, everything about them was specific. God, when he called a prophet to live and to speak as he did in the Old Testament, he always did so to, to give them a specific message uh, to a specific audience in a specific time for a specific period of time. God was precise in their ministry. In fact, if we, we go back and we study the book of Eli or the life of Elijah in Kings, we find that Elijah was a, was a powerful prophet of God. And he spoke, and he spoke with thunder on Mount Carmel, and God devoured the false prophets of Baal with fire. And we think, surely, this is the launching point for a phenomenal ministry that's going to continue for years. And you know, that's the last time that Elijah really ever did anything. After that, Elijah ran. And he got depressed and he hid because the queen he had just prophesied against, Jezebel, said, by this time tomorrow, I will do to you what you did to my prophets. You will be dead. And Elijah, out of fear, ran and he hid in a cave. And you know what? No more ministry. Unique. Bizarre. God had him at an appointed place, at an appointed time for a specific message. And once it was done, God did not call him to anything greater again. They were men of weakness whom God made bold. They didn't possess any innate desire or gifts that would have qualified them for the job to which God called them. Suffice it to say, as in Hosea, the word of the Lord was speaking through them, not themselves. Hey, you know what? They were people just like us. They were prone to discouragement. They were prone to fear. They were prone to sinful thinking. They were prone to be at times exceedingly selfish like Jonah was. Jonah, go preach to the people in Nineveh. I don't want to. I hate the Ninevites. They don't deserve to be saved. Jonah, go preach to Nineveh. I don't want to preach in Nineveh, so I'll run away. Okay, but there's a big fish waiting for you, Jonah. Jonah, finally, go and preach to Nineveh. Okay, fine, I'll go. And then the people repent. And there's a massive revival in the city. And people turn from idols to God. And you know what Jonah does? He pouts. I didn't want you to save them. How selfish. How like us. 
many times. The prophets were subject to scorn and ridicule for their oddities. Now look at Hosea. Here is a man who is a man of God. He is a prophet called to speak on behalf of God in the nation of Israel. And he's married to a harlot. You don't think that raised eyebrows around town? Yeah. yeah. Look at him. You know, you know what his wife does? You know what she did to him? Not once. Not twice. But repeatedly. Can you imagine the town gossips? The scorn and the ridicule that Hosea took for his wife and would not forsake her. I can just hear the counselors in Hosea's day. Dude, you have got grounds for divorce. Get rid of her. Get rid of her. Man, if anybody's been wronged, Hosea, you've been wrong, brother. Get out of this relationship. And Hosea says, no, I'm staying. No, I'm going to love her. No, I'm going to take her back. You don't think they mocked him for that? They had some really odd things that occurred in their life. You think about Ezekiel and his visions. Modern psychologists have tried to psychoanalyze Ezekiel and to read some of their analysis of him is quite entertaining because it's so bogus. But you have to admit on the surface uh, to read it, it, it's not normal. God doesn't normally talk that way and men don't normally talk that way. But nevertheless, he did. They wore, as John the Baptist did, rough clothing. They ate locusts and honey. They, they had a strange diet. They lived often hermetic lifestyles away from society. So common, so human were these men. But they had one authoritative stance that was common to all of them from which they spoke. And it went like this. Thus saith the Lord. You couldn't argue with that. Strange as they were, they spoke on behalf of God. They were despised and so far removed from being considered legitimate in the eyes of the people that the message that they spoke became central. In other words, the man was not the issue, the message was. It was not them, but God that had to be confronted through their message. And Hosea falls into this category. But the second thing about Hosea that's unique from verse 1 as we learn more about him this morning is that Hosea himself points us to the redemption of God. Now, this is interesting. In the Old Testament, we've said this before, but just to remind you, names mean something in the Old Testament. When someone was named in the Old Testament, it meant something. They lived up to what their name meant. And Hosea is no exception. From the time his parents named him, Hosea was marked out to live out one message. And that message, even in his name, is this. God is a redeeming God. The name Hosea is from the root Hebrew word Yesha, from which we get the word Joshua, Yeshua. 
the New Testament derivative of which is Jesus. And it means God saves. God redeems. Joshua, in the Old Testament, as he took over for Moses and led the people of Israel out of slavery and out of the wilderness and into the promised land, was a redeeming leader who was a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. Jesus was called Yeshua HaMashiach. He was the Messiah, the Savior. The word Hosea is the same derivative. It comes from the same root word. Someone once called him the first prophet of grace. Israel's earliest evangelist. And so from the beginning, even Hosea, Hosea, is to communicate to the people that he speaks to that God is a God of redemption. They would have known this just by his name. Oh, your name means God is a redeeming God. How many of you, by the way, know what your name means? I mean, very few people even know what their name means. Our names mean something too. So people back then made much of that, however, and even this prophet's name signified what his message was about, and that was that God is a God of redeeming love. In the history of Israel and on through the history of the church, few outside of Jesus and perhaps Paul in the New Testament have so vividly and wonderfully painted a picture of God's redeeming grace as Hosea did. His is a tragedy redeemed because God's love cannot be stopped. And he lived that out and he preached that. While God would judge the nation of Israel and Hosea said judgment is coming. He wanted them to know that after judgment would ultimately come redemption. His name and his life under God's direction would, and even today, does demonstrate the overwhelming love of God for overwhelmingly unlovable and unlovely people. That's what we know about Hosea. But now let's talk just for a moment by way of introduction about the audience that he spoke to. Hosea was a prophet whose message is made all the more spectacular because of his surroundings. He was a prophet to Israel. Look in verse 1. Notice how there is a division here. Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the day. So God is giving us a, a time frame as to when Hosea ministered. And he gives us two sets of kings. And don't let this confuse you, because you remember that Israel, after Solomon, divided the kingdom. There were the northern ten tribes, and then there were the southern two tribes. And God, uh, wanting us to understand the time, gives us the kings, both for the southern and the northern kingdom, who were alive during Hosea's day. And so, he gives us these names. But Hosea did not minister to the southern two tribes. He instead ministered to the northern ten tribes, known as Israel or Ephraim in the book. Hosea ministered shortly before the fall of the northern ten tribes to the pagan nation of Assyria that occurred in 722 B.C. 
In total, Hosea ministered about 66 years to these northern ten tribes. Now listen, Judah, the southern two, and Israel were both wicked. They both were idolatrous. They both sinned in the eyes of God. Both of them did much evil. But it was the northern kingdom who bears the reputation for having some of the most horrific acts of idolatry. They got involved in things that the southern tribes never dreamed of. They were wicked. They were they were uh, Heinz 57, if you will, in that they intermarried with the Assyrians and other nations around them, unlike the southern tribes did. In fact, it is even to this day that there are names associated with the ten northern tribes that have connotation today. Ahab and Jezebel were the hallmark poster children for the northern kingdom. They embodied what it was to be an Israelite in Hosea's day. Now, you tell me, if that name means something, anybody here know any parent who has named their daughter Jezebel? Not me. If you do, I'd like to talk to you. Because I, I, I don't know any, but because it says something, doesn't it? It says wickedness, it says immorality, it says viciousness. And we use that in our culture today. She's a Jezebel. That means run from that person. They stereotyped the gross idolatry of the cult of Baal or Baal in the northern kingdom. Hosea was called to minister to these people. Hosea was sent to them in the midst of their wickedness, in the midst of their idolatry, to call them back to God. What was the culture like in Hosea's day? Well, the culture was one of, as I mentioned earlier, Baal worship. And especially in the first three chapters, we understand how grotesque this culture was. The cult of Baal was obsessed with promiscuity and immorality of the most filthy types. I wouldn't even begin to mention some of the things that happened in the temple of Baal. It, it, it is X-rated of the, the most grotesque kind. But who was who was Baal? Who was this God? Well, he was an imaginary idol. He was an imaginary God of crops. He was an agrarian God. And you have to think back. They didn't have grocery stores. The nation of Israel's economy was agrarian at the time. That's how they lived. And Baal was the imaginary God of the northern kingdom especially that was supposed to send rain and seed and cause crops to grow. He was a God then of fertility. And so, if Baal is a God of fertility, then what better way to worship Him than through the acts of human fertility and reproduction? You get the point. That's how you worshiped Him. In fact, a Baal worshiper would go into the temples of Baal there in northern Israel uh, to uh, indulge in this type of drunkenness and immorality. And he would say to the temple 
uh, stewardess, so to speak, who was there to meet that act, he would offer up a prayer and he would say to her this, I beseech the goddess of a start to favor you through fertility and Baal to favor me and my crops. The act of sowing and reproduction then in the temple was supposed to invoke and provoke the agrarian god Baal to cause his seed and his farm to grow. And so when God portrays the nation of Israel in this type of behavior uh, through Hosea and Gomer's life, you understand, you get the picture. This was what happened. This is how filthily people lived. And what Gomer did to Hosea in his personal life in their marriage is not merely metaphorical, it is real. She joined in with this pagan idolatry. The filth and the stain of being cheated on, being hurt in a marriage are some of the most painful and lasting stains and sins that can ever be committed. In fact, if we're here this morning and we're looking at the life of Hosea, we're sitting here, especially those of us who are married, and we're saying, I can't imagine anything worse. I can't imagine anything more painful than to have my spouse repeatedly going and indulging in infidelity in some gross, immoral setting like the Baal cult that pervaded the land. I can't imagine that. And yet God says to Hosea, this is exactly what I want you to be a part of. I want you to be the man, the faithful husband who does not leave his wife, although he certainly could. He could write her a bill of divorcement because of her infidelity. But I say to you, Hosea, don't do that. Go show them what real love looks like and keep pulling her back. Keep bringing her home. Keep trying to rebuild her life. Keep ministering to her. Keep loving her. Because that is what I'm going to do for the nation of Israel who has been so unfaithful to me. And I'm not going to stop. And I'm not going to leave. And I'm not going to break my covenant promises to her. The kings that lived that Hosea prophesied to were some of the most wicked kings that the world has ever known. In 30 years, they had six different kings. That may not sound like a lot to us. We get a new president every four years, so big deal. In 30 years, we could have seven presidents. But in that culture, kings, once you became a king, you were there until you died. So do the math, six kings, 30 years. There were three assassinations that occurred during Hosea's ministry. Can you imagine in your lifetime having three presidents assassinated? That's almost unthinkable, isn't it? And yet this is the type of turmoil that Hosea lived in. And the kings were constantly changing and killing one another. And they were bloodthirsty and violent and proud men, idolatrous. And ultimately it would lead to their own destruction. 
In fact, if we go over, look, flip all the way back to the end of the book, chapter 14. Listen to what God says through Hosea. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all our iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. And you say, well, of course they won't save you. They're your arch enemy. They, in fact, in Hosea's time, listen to this. Assyria invaded Israel six times during Hosea's ministry. Six times a foreign army comes in and lays waste and then leaves. They raid and then they leave. They raid and they leave. Can you imagine living with that kind of fear? It'd be like the Mexican government or the Mexican cartel coming over six times during your lifetime and raiding Midland. That'd be unsettling, wouldn't it? And so one of the kings in Hosea's day, decided that he would bribe them. He would set up an agreement with Tiglath-Pileser III, who was a wicked Assyrian ruler, and he would pay him duty not to be invaded. And so they paid this heavy tax every year to this Assyrian king, thinking he wouldn't come down and destroy them if they did this. But look what Hosea says in verse 3 of chapter, Assyria will not save us. Doesn't matter how much we pay him, that's not going to save us. Only God will save us. Only God can redeem us. It doesn't matter what political alliances you have, kings, you're wicked, you're corrupt, they're wicked, they're corrupt, and they won't save you. Only God can. But then Hosea had a message to deliver. Here's the message he had to deliver in It's no different than the message of God for today. That's what I want you to know. As we're going through this, don't read it merely as a historical book, which it is. But understand that the message of Hosea for his people in his day is every bit as relevant for us today. And here are the cornerstones. Number one, God is a God of holiness and will not tolerate sin. Judgment is certain for those who do. When we look at chapter 1, simply chapter 1, listen to the, the, the judgment of God in the names of Hosea's children. Name her Lo Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion. God says, your sin, I will not tolerate. I will not have compassion on you that I would just simply overlook it. She gives birth to a son and his name is Loami. And and he says to him that that this name Loami literally means my people, you are not. And I am not your God. God takes sin seriously. And he will not tolerate it. In fact, he says judgment will fall on it. Many today look at Jesus as just a preacher of love. You realize the first sermon Jesus preached was one of judgment. Jesus spoke more about hell than he ever did heaven. 
Because the holiness of God will not tolerate sin. Jesus spoke of the tragic results of denying Him, of rebelling against the Father, of continuing on in unconfessed sin. That's certainly a message that Hosea gives us, but then Hosea gives us this hope-giving message as well. That for those who repent and turn to God, those who say, I hate my sin as God hates my sin, I don't want this anymore. I want a God of mercy to love me and to redeem me and to save me and make me something different than what I am. That is the message of Hosea. That's the message of the gospel, that God redeems sinners. Jesus not only told of judgment to come, but He told of redemption and life that came through faith in Him because of what He would do for us, paying our debt of sin, which is death for us. The book of Hosea is full of prophecies of judgment, but against that backdrop of judgment shines the proliferation of the promises of redemption. God would chastise so that God could save. The story of Hosea is not necessarily a cheerful one. I'm warning you. It's not one that you're going to leave each Sunday going, man, that felt good. But it is one that might save your life. It is one that brings great brokenness over sin. It is one that humbles us in the face of God's grace and His love for sinners. To understand how much God loves you should humble you and break you. Knowing that yes, you are not a lovable person. And you do not deserve to be loved. Yet you have been loved with an everlasting love. How humbling that reality is. As we go through this book, I want you to anticipate these great truths. Okay? Take these home with you. This is our conclusion this morning. I want you to anticipate the sovereignty of God. Unless you get the fact that God is in control over all things, this book will crush you and leave you without hope. Unless you believe that God is in control and orchestrating the life of Hosea, you will become depressed. You want proof? How many of you would tell your children, go marry somebody who's going to cheat on you? Repeatedly. Anybody going to advise their children to do that? Not me. But you see, I trust in a sovereign God that he didn't mess up by telling Hosea to do this. He's in control. He is writing this story. Not to crush us, but to redeem us. To raise us up. Hosea is commanded to go and marry a woman who would become a harlot. By the way, Hosea in no way indicted himself. It was not sinful. In fact, uh, the evidence points of that Gomer was not a harlot when he married her. She became one after he married her. So he did nothing wrong. But we have to understand in this book that God is sovereign and He has a sovereign plan. Not only for Hosea, He had a sovereign plan for Israel. And He's not going to fail in that plan. And although they're sent into exile at the end of the book, God promises to bring them back. 
And so he did. We have to understand and anticipate the sovereignty of God in orchestrating all of these things. Second thing I want you to anticipate as you're reading this book, and I pray that you will read this book and reread this book and read it again as we go through the summer, but I want you to anticipate the power of the gospel and grace over the stain of sin. It occurs many times in Scripture that the love of God is most easily seen against the backdrop of sin's stain. I challenge you, find me one passage of Scripture that says, God loved them because they were perfect. You know what you'll find over and over again in Scripture? That God's love is mentioned in conjunction when people are the most unlovable. Scott read it this morning, could not have read a better passage this morning, Scott. But God demonstrated His love toward us while we were sinners. Not after. God didn't love us after our salvation. He loved us before so that we would obtain salvation. Anticipate the power of grace over the stain of sin. Think about the awfulness of the sin. Think about the stain of sin. Think about the pain of sin that is in each one of us, but anticipate the love of God that is more powerful than any sin you could ever commit. And then lastly, I want you to anticipate the pursuit of God that knows no limits. How big is your God? How far will He go? To redeem you. You read the book of Hosea. And you understand that God will go anywhere. And do anything. To redeem his people. And I want you to anticipate that. To anticipate. The tireless pursuit of God. For those whom he has set his love on. Anticipate that God is calling and pursuing those who are His, and that no sin, no force can separate them from His love. The Apostle Paul said it, didn't he? What then will separate us from the love of God? Will any of these things? No. God is a God of unfailing, faithful, redeeming love. That's the story of Hosea. That's what we have to look forward to as we discover the intricacies of how God does this. And each week to come away saying, I am not a lovable person. I do not deserve to be loved. But God in His faithfulness has loved me. Do you think that could deepen your worship? Would that deepen your gratitude? Would that deepen your confidence that God has loved you like that? I think it will. I know it will. Father, thank you that you have loved us with such faithful, redeeming love. Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit to minister grace to us through the hearing of your word as we read and preach through the book of Hosea. 
during these summer months. And Father, may we have a more accurate view of who you are, of the gospel, of the price that you will pay, of the sin that you will not ignore, but yet you will forgive because you are a God of redemption. And we pray, Father, that our worship, that our gratitude, that our joy would be made full and deep and rich because we have learned this about you. So, Father, we ask, would you speak to us? Would you break us by your love? Would you humble us by your love that we might be filled with your joy? For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.